Hello again, and welcome to the first 2023 installment of Interview with the PD Pod. My name is Nick Fletcher, and I'm at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Today is probably a special an episode for me, as I've put out, as I get to interview somebody who has had a tremendous amount of influence over my career and is honestly just an incredible friend and mentor to me. Um, Interestingly, I'm sure that many of you listeners do know Bob Bruce, but probably not as many as may know somebody like some of my previous guests, such as Dan Cicado. But I hope that for everybody out there, you have a Bob Bruce in your career, in your practice, and certainly in your life. Uh, Bob is an associate professor of orthopedics at Emory University, and he was the guy who I joined 13 years ago when I started my practice. And I wanted to give you a little bit of background on me. I don't talk to my listeners too much about sort of my story, but I came uh, from Texas Scottish Rite to Emory in 2010, having had another job sort of in place and was asked by a very close friend of mine to take a look at Emory because they had a tremendous need. And I came down from, or I guess I came over from Dallas and didn't really have much interest in looking in Atlanta other than my friend who had asked me to look here. And uh, I met Bob and I was immediately taken aback by how personable he is, how thoughtful he is, um, really how caring he is. And that's born through over our our career together. Um, I was fortunate enough to come into a situation where he was essentially drowning um, in patient volume. Um, At the time, he was doing close to 800 cases a year. And some of the biggest, baddest spines and most complex CP, he is a truly gifted surgeon. When I say truly gifted, I really mean it. I've had the opportunity to work with some real legends in the field. And I would put Bob's skills and technical expertise and just clinical acumen against uh, really anybody who I've ever met. Um, He is an incredibly thoughtful clinician. Uh, We do a lot of our big spine cases together. And one of the things that I don't get to on the podcast much is that he has always had me stand on the left side of the patient, which for those of you who do spine knows that that's sort of the director's seat. And he told me basically day one that he wanted us to do this and that he wanted me to be the alpha dog in the, uh, in the operating room. And so this guy who's got 30 years of experience would sort of sit back and, and help the case go smoother. And I think that just speaks towards Bob's ability to make everybody around him better. Um, on a personal level, he is a wonderfully caring human being and has uh, saved my butt a million times from a clinical standpoint so that I was able to do something with my family. Um, we've talked about before the fact that he sort of chastised me a long time ago for not spending time with my family, so he's really, really a family man. He's got a wonderful family of his, of his own, and he likes his toys. Um, as my good friend Joe Stone at UNC says, he's a bit of a leisure savant. He, he really knows how to, lay, to uh, kick back. And, and enjoyed, um, especially given his, his hectic life of, uh, on the clinical side. Um, while he doesn't have quite as much role in POSNA as others, he has allowed me to shine there. And I can promise you that every pediatrician in Atlanta has him on speed dial. He's had some tremendous roles, including medical staff president at CHOA. And really, the some of the things that I've been able to hang my shingle on in the peds ortho world, such as the early discharge pathway, is basically his. I just happen to write it up. So he gets all the credit on 
creating that. Um, he's, he's really a thoughtful and innovative surgeon. So this was a lot of fun for me. We had the opportunity after a long call week for me to go over to his house and uh, drink a glass of bourbon and talk for an hour and a half together. So thank you for listening and for uh, continuing to support this podcast. Um, again, this is a very special episode for me, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you. Well, Bob, I am very excited for this. I've been uh, looking forward to it for the past couple of years. I started this, I think, in the sh- at the Charlotte Pozna in 2019, but I always sort of had the idea that you would be the first person from our practice to have on. And, and we've been together now going on 13 years. It's my 12th year, and I have said to many, many people that probably the greatest successes in my medical uh, practice have come really in many ways because of you. So um, I'm excited to have an, an opportunity to talk to you for an hour. Um, so thanks for being on. Happy to do it. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that I always like to sort of start at the beginning. Um, and we've talked lots of times about sort of where you grew up, but I actually realized I don't really know too much about you as a kid. Can you talk to me a little bit about sort of your upbringing and your folks and, uh, and what kind of stuff you were into as a kid? Sure. So I was born and raised for 18 years in Greenville, South Carolina, which is in the upstate of South Carolina. And my father was a native uh, Greenvillian. My mother from North Carolina by birth, but spent a number of years, the majority of her elementary and junior high and the first couple of years of high school years in the New York area. Her father was an executive with United Merchants, which was the largest textile manufacturer in the world in the sort of pre-World War II and World War II era. Then when she was in high school, moved to Morganton, North Carolina, which is a little small town near Hickory, North Carolina, started a small mill, and then um, she lived there for a couple of years and went to school in, um, in Greensboro, North Carolina, and then met my father shortly after college and moved to Greenville. Gotcha. And, and so, uh, and you were the oldest, right? So I have an interesting sort of family uh, story. Uh, my, um, my father's brother and sister-in-law had children who were roughly my age, one exactly a year older and one a month younger than me. They had a third child who was my biologic younger sister's age, two and a half years younger than me. When I was six years old, my uh, uncle and aunt and youngest cousin all perished in a house fire, really tragically. And the two girls um, got out of the house and became my sisters instantly and were really, really close. I've called them sisters since they moved in with us. I was six. One of them was six. One of them was seven. My youngest sister, biologic sister, uh, Martha, uh, suffered from that because the three of us were essentially the same age. You know, we grew up together, we had the same friends, we did everything together. But it was a lot of fun. So I was the only boy, I was sort of a middle child, um, but all three of us were basically the same age. Yeah. And and um, so you're, obviously your parents weren't in medicine. Did either of them play sort of an active role in your decision to, to come into this career? You know, they, they played no role whatsoever in my decision <laughs> to be a, a doctor. It's funny. Uh, there are a couple of things that I remember my entire life always wanting to be. One was a physician and the other was a pilot. 
if you'd asked me at four years of age what I was going to be when I grew up, I would have told you a doctor. My immediate next-door neighbor, my behind-my-house neighbor, and then right around the corner neighbor were my three pediatricians. The one around the corner was my mother's brother, my uncle's roommate in college. So they were pretty strong influencers in my life for whatever reason. I you know, played in their yards, played with their kids, grew up with them. But I just always liked the idea of, of being a physician, of being able to help people. And then I've been enamored with aircraft my whole life. I've always stopped and looked at any airplane that flew by, moved by. Um, and I know we'll talk about that a bit more later. But uh, those are the two things I was interested in. It, it's really funny because nobody ever believed I'd become a physician. They'd pat me on the head and go, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> they thought you were going to be a pilot? Well, I think they thought I'd do, you know, maybe they didn't think I was smart enough. Um, but neither of my parents were interested in medicine. My father fainted at the at the mention of blood. Um, my mom's a good sport and, you know, w- was fine with things medical. But no, you know, neither one of them had any direct influence on medicine. And I had another neighbor who was an ophthalmologist who probably was a, a strong influencer. And then I had a, a, a friend whose father was a gastroenterologist. And again, they all really mentored me pretty strongly through high school and, you know, kind of how to behave and be in college and make good grades and go to med school. So, you know, I am thankful to all of those people, and I've had—I've actually had the pleasure and the opportunity to thank each one of them individually for the opportunity that, that I think they gave me by, you know, the advice they gave and the mentorship and the love they showed me. That's awesome. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. But my parents were interesting. You know, both of them had tremendous influence on me. My mom was was very gregarious and a great athlete and very social. And so I took some of the, you know, the gregarious nature from her, and I'm not particularly athletic, but was always athletic. Um, my father was a little more reserved, but, but still did a tremendous amount. He was kind of an outdoors person, and we spent, I mean, we spent all of our childhood outdoors. We were playing tennis, we were hiking, we were you know, boating, canoeing, sailing something outdoors continually never inside and it just was not something that we did I grew up on the edge of Greenville it was kind of rural on the edge and you know I was out running around in the woods every afternoon on a bike something like that so that's kind of that's kind of where I came from yeah where were you because I've always been impressed in addition to your outdoorsiness uh which which I love uh you've also been incredibly uh, resourceful, especially at like house repairs, doing things around the house, working, you know, you've got a, a place up at a lake and you do a lot of work uh, there on your own. Were you a tinker as a kid? Were you a, I mean, did you get into sort of building things and, and that kind of stuff? Absolutely. I loved building model airplanes, model trains. I had a, a big model train set that I was continually working on. Um, I built a go-kart. I had a motor, you know, kind of a motorbike, dirt bike that I was always breaking. So I had to learn how to repair it because no one was going to pay for that to be done. My father was pretty handy. And, you know, I did not grow up with a giant silver spoon in my mouth. Certainly grew up very well and very privileged. But, you know, we, we made stuff. We fixed stuff together. Um, you know, we cut firewood, we split firewood, we, we sort of did a little bit of everything. It, it, it's interesting. Um, when I'm getting ready to do something that, you know, I don't want to tell you what I'm getting ready to do, um, 
I say I'm about to talk to a man about a horse, and um, <laughs> that used to be my father's kind of statement yeah. for doing something that he, you know, like none of your business, right? Yeah. So when I was probably seven or eight, in fact, no, actually I was five because it was before my sisters came. Um, I asked him what he was up to, and he said, I'm going to talk to a man about a horse. And he came home with a horse, and really a horse, and we put it in our backyard <laughs> because, as I said, we lived a bit, you know, on yeah. the edge of town. And then we built a carriage that this, it was actually a pony, but that this pony pulled. And he had the harness built for the carriage. And then we were in the Christmas parade in Greenville, South Carolina, when I was six and my sister was three. So really shortly before my other sisters came to live with us. So that, that's sort of the stuff that, yeah. that, you know, developed that sense of confidence, maybe ever confidence and ability to do those sorts of things. Yeah, but I think that's, I mean... It's great because you had to solve problems at an early age. And, you know, I think building and handiwork around the house is something that nowadays doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, I love my kids, but they probably can't change a light bulb, you know? And that's, that's just a, a newer generation. Although, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who can uh, at that age. Yeah. I still do a lot around the house. Yeah. So, and I, and I think that has transferred well to my career as well. I mean, there are times when having a bit of common sense and, and you know, horse sense, if you will, yeah. um, is helpful. I, I certainly don't think that you should figure out orthopedics, um, but I do think occasionally we find ourselves with a challenge that requires resourcefulness and having some, you know, technical experience as a younger person has made that maybe a little easier for me for time, from time to time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, I think sort of your 3D capacity has always been remarkable. And there's probably something that has was, you know, ingrained early on your ability to sort of think in three dimensions, because a lot of, you know, building and um, handiwork is is three dimensional problems. So, um, so uh, I I remember when we started out uh, and practice together, I thought it was just sort of happenstance that we'd both been Vandy guys. Um, You went to Davidson before. Um, but we did have some overlap. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your experience at Vandy for uh, med school and some of the mentors you had there? I had an absolutely spectacular time as a med student at Vanderbilt. I'm still convinced it was one of the best medical schools in the, in the country at that time. Uh, the things that I thought were really special about it, and I had no idea because I had nothing to compare to until I you know, worked other places, um, were how med student centric that institution was in the 80s i have i don't have a frame of reference for the present still is, well it was when i was there but it, it you know you were first and foremost very very important on most services on rounds uh in the clinic and i just thought that was normal they gave me a lot of opportunity to learn to do and and i took advantage of it i you know i took difficult electives during my fourth year and when I had an opportunity in my third year and, you know, wanted to really learn how to, you know, I took renal medicine because I was really interested in learning how to manage sick patients. I took ICU rotation. I took a cardiology rotation. I knew I was going to do orthopedic surgery. At least I hoped I was going to, I was overly confident and thought I was going to do orthopedics. And so I figured I needed to become a good physician first. 
The other thing that, that they had, and I suspect they still had when you were there, was they had um, this didactic session where we all came back together in the fourth year after match day yep. for 12 weeks. And, I mean, it was to keep us out of trouble, right? Because we had to be there in order to finish. <laughs> and We still managed to get in some trouble. Yeah, we, well, but it was, yeah, we had to be there tomorrow. Yep. So, um, and we, and we, you know, we had lectures on simple things like the common cold. Yep. What is a common cold? How long does it last? It, you know, and that information made me a much, much better intern and resident when, when I left Vanderbilt. Um, and, and, you know, we had all kinds of lectures on things that would be important to being a young doctor, a young physician. And then I had several mentors there who, uh, who were terrific examples of how to be, of, you know, why we do what we do, of how much the patients mean to us. And, you know, on occasion, how much we can actually mean to the patient, which was, you know, which, I, again, I took completely for granted at the time and now am so very appreciative of. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, you've told me some of the stories, but obviously the, the listener hasn't heard this. But talk a little bit about you ended up going up to Minnesota for uh, for your fellowship or for a residency. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the process of of getting up there and uh, and how because you had some some uh, exposure to Neil Green who I think helped in that process. Is that right? Yeah, perfect. You gave me yeah. the segue back yeah. to Vanderbilt for a moment. So the person who was unbelievably instrumental in my you know in some some level of success that I've um, that I've had was Neil Green I, I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician in fact I was certain I wanted to be a pediatrician I spent every summer working with kids you know, running a mountaineering program in North Carolina and I got assigned orthopedic surgery as an elective in my third year so, and interestingly, another person I want to shout out to is John Seiler, who has yeah. been, you know, my partner at Emory a number of years ago and still very involved in our residency. But John was a resident on the service with me, and I had been there about three hours, and we were on pediatric <laughs> orthopedics, and I realized right then and there that I did not want to be a pediatrician, that I wanted to be a pediatric orthopedist. We had a wonderful time, but Neil Green was... You know, was tremendous. He he obviously was technically very very you know excellent. Um, he was unbelievable in the clinic. He had seen everything. He knew the problem before he ever walked in the room. Just talking to the resident and asking the appropriate questions. Many times he asked questions that the resident couldn't answer. Right. But he knew they needed to know the answer to that question, and um, he loved absolutely loved the kids the patients and loved what he did and and was was so dedicated to taking care of patients so for whatever reason he he apparently took a, a liking to me and became my advisor and when it came time to talk about residency programs i said you know dr green where should i go and he said well you know if you want my pick i, I would go learned from my very, very good friend, Roby Thompson, who's chairman at the University of Minnesota. And I went, hmm, you know, I'm a Southerner. I've, I've lived in South Carolina. <laughs> I've lived in North Carolina, yeah. and I ventured all the way west to Nashville, Tennessee. I've got yeah. this young bride. Well, I did have one shortly thereafter. The yeah. good news is that my fiancé at that point, soon-to-be young bride, was, was uh, actually, or at least had lived in Wisconsin for a period of time okay. during high school. So it wasn't all that far in for her. 
And I said, okay, you know, I'm, that was the time when, when your mentors told you what to do, you, you sort of had two choices. You could burn that bridge or do what they said. Yeah. And um, so I, I applied to the program and I went up there and interviewed and they interviewed very, very few people. And I did have a bit of an inside track in that I, uh, David Bradford, who was, you know, chief of the Twin City Scoliosis Center and, and you know, a very prominent spine surgeon, obviously, and I know we will talk about him, yeah. but was there as well. And he is my mom's first cousin. So, you know, I think that makes him it's my pretty first good cousin. End. Yeah. My first cousin once removed. We were not that close. Yeah. We did become very close. Um, anyway, we had a great interview, had a great experience, and was given the opportunity to match there and you know, was thrilled with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, we've talked about it, I don't know, countless times, but you were there at really an unparalleled time. I mean, I think for, uh, especially for the younger listeners, the, it's hard to imagine the brain trust that was University of Minnesota uh, orthopedics at the time, right? So the program has a great history, yeah. but, but I was really fortunate to have that constellation of faculty at the time. Rebbe Thompson, musculoskeletal oncologist, tremendous chairman, tremendous clinician, tremendous you know, maker of physicians, of, of people, uh, had amassed uh, a spine center that was unbelievable. It was David Bradford and Enser Transfelt and Jim Ogilvie and Obi Boachi. And those were the primary anchor physicians for the Twin City Scoliosis Center. And then right across town, and we worked with them, was the Minnesota Spine Center, which was, which was Bob Winter, obviously the, the kind of director of that practice at that point, and John Lonstein and Francois Denis. It's crazy. And Joe Para. Yeah. And then we had tremendous spine surgeons at Gillette Children's as well. Steve Coop, yep. who will forever be underappreciated, was... You know, a tremendous teacher, tremendous clinician, tremendous technician. Um, so that was was great. In hand, we had Jim House, who is, is very, very well known historically for research in tetraplegia, and was a, again a great teacher. You know, taught you how to be a lot of really interesting concepts that that I still you know really use on a regular basis. For instance, one of his favorite things to say was, "We'd be in clinic and some." patient would have a swollen hand and it would hurt and they couldn't move it and you go well you know you can't bend a sausage and <laughs> you just kind of laugh but you know the point was get rid of the edema and then and the motion comes back and i mean i can't tell you how much i've used that in hand and foot and everything else i uh, get rid of the edema the comfort tends, tends to return and range of motion tends to return so you know that was that group um, and then you look at the pediatric orthopedist that i was exposed to and again I went there with the intention of becoming a children's orthopedist because, again, I had wanted to be a pediatrician to start with. But I found that every rotation I was on, oh, all of a sudden that's what I want to do. So in my internship, I did neurosurgery kind of early in the year, and I had a great rotation, and the chairman of neurosurgery was a was a real giant in the field of neurosurgery, a guy named Shelley Shu, and any neurosurgeon who might ever listen to this would immediately recognize the name. And, and um, he took me aside and said, look, if you want to do neurosurgery, 
we would like to have you in neurosurgery. And what I'll do is you'll get credit for your internship. And then, you know, at that point, neurosurgery was still a five-year residency, but everybody did fellowships. And he said, and you can do a fellowship because we're getting ready to go to six years and it'll count towards your sixth year. So I sat down with Dr. Thompson and said, Dr. Thompson, I've been offered this job by Dr. Shu, and I really am thinking about taking it. And, and, and he asked me, not quite as nicely as this, but had I, had I lost my mind? And I, I told him I didn't think so, and he told me he thought I had. Um, and he was absolutely right. And, and so he was very nice about it. He said, I'll tell you what, you do your PGY2 year, and if you decide you want to do neurosurgery, you'll have that spot and you'll get credit for your PGY2 year. But give orthopedics a year. And I mean, he was absolutely right. Um, but I had on our trauma rotation, I had, you know, Regostio. So when, when I'm learning about how to manage open fractures, I'm learning from Regostio as, as in the Gostio-Anderson classification. I had Dick Kyle, who at that point was really climbing in the field and ultimately became, you know, president of the academy and has been president of everything you could possibly be. Another tremendous teacher. He was one of the slickest surgeons you've ever thought about operating yeah. with. And David Templeman, who is a tremendous traumatologist, and Tom Varaka, who is a, a really underappreciated trauma hand and upper extremity surgeon. And, you know, that was just such a great experience. The other interesting thing in trauma was St. Paul Ramsey at that point, now Regions Medical Center. And before I got there, it had been Anchor Hospital. But anyway, the St. Paul uh, Trauma Hospital had been anchored by Fred Behrens and Tom Comfort, two giant names in trauma research, primarily AO guys, XFIX, and internal fixation. And Fred Behrens became chairman of orthopedics at UMDNJ, and Tom Comfort unfortunately passed away at way too young an age. But the residency pulled out of that program, and I, I um, was still very close to the other faculty there and you know, was given the opportunity to moonlight with them, so had additional trauma experience there. Um, and then we get to the pediatric experience, and you know, we were fortunate enough to have two children's hospitals and a lot of time on pediatrics. We had Gillette Children's, and we had the Shriners Hospital there, and that was one of the oldest continually operating Shriners Hospitals in the country. We had a brand new hospital, but it really had quite a tradition. And that Shriners Hospital had a very, very large territory with a lot of outreach into the Dakotas and, um, and you know, other places west. Obviously, the uh, Salt Lake Shrine kind of worked back towards us, but there's a lot of real estate between, between there. Yeah. Right. And um, the, chair, the, the chief at the Minneapolis Shrine was a guy named Lyle Johnson, and Lyle was just a wonderful person and, again, another sort of great maker of people. He was, he was, he did a fair amount of research, was extremely well known within the Shriners Hospital system, isn't somebody who wrote texts and that sort of thing, um, but was great friends with, you know, the likes of Sherman Coleman, who came and, I mean, he, I must have had him, you know, had the opportunity to interact with him five or six times in six years there. And, um, you know, we just had such a great experience with, with the Shriners Hospital. And then, obviously, Jim Gage, you know, yeah. who, on whose shoulders I stand every single day, had come to Gillette. And a number of other faculty, uh, Steve Koop, Tom Novacek, was a fairly new faculty member, uh, but was tremendously instrumental in, you know, kind of who I am now. Um, again, I've mentioned Steve Koop, another name, Dick Adalin, um, 
Steve Sundberg, who's still practicing and very, very active, and then Mark Dahl. I had the I had the real privilege of working with Mark. Mark had a limb deformity practice that was both adult and children, but spent a tremendous amount of time with us at the Children's Hospital with limb deformity. Which is interesting because you have a second fellowship in limb deformity, and yet... Well, I mean, you do limb deformity on a regular basis, but I mean, we've put on like two frames in the 13 years I've been here. It's, um, I, I've always sort of been curious about how you decided to make the decision to do that second fellowship in, uh, in limb deformity. Well, for the first 10 years of my practice, limb deformity was easily part. 30 yeah. to 40 percent yeah. of what I did. So. Mark and I had a great relationship, very different personalities. He is extremely Midwestern, and I am extremely Southern. Um, and occasionally that was interesting. But he was he was a great uh, mentor to me at that time and, and approached me during my pediatric fellowship and said, look, if you want, I actually am getting ready to start a fellowship and would love to have you be my fellow. Would you like to stay on and do a so little you were the first fellow? I don't know that I was completely the first fellow. I think he had a couple of other people that had worked with him a bit of time, but I certainly was one of the first. So we worked it out that I would work with him when I finished the fellowship at Gillette and Shriners. Um, and that was a you know great experience, tremendous clinical volume. We did a lot of pediatrics, but I also did adult, and we concentrated on things like non-unions and adult deformity and infection and all of those things that were, I mean, I was exposed to them in residency, but certainly not part of my pediatric fellowship. Um, and we had a great time together, and you know, I learned a bunch from him. And it's really funny because I, I know you remember we had him as a visiting professor mm-hmm. here in the last year, and I bet you laughed at the number of things that he said that you've heard come out yeah, of your yeah, mouth totally. a number of times. But he's a really, really good teacher because he breaks things down very specifically in ways that you can understand quite clearly. He says the same thing over and over again, not to be anything other than consistent and, and a good teacher. And, you know, I took away from that all those principles of management that I apply to so many other things than limb deformity. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, th- I think it's great. I mean, you know, clearly the experience was uh, was one that left a big impression on you. I remember, you know, you, you and I did two or three frames early on when I thought I was be something I'd want to do. And I was amazed that since you hadn't done one on your own since I'd been in practice, but it was like riding a bike. I mean, the the principles were all there. The frame setup was, you know, instantaneous. And I was just sort of impressed by that. Um, so I, I think an important concept that he uh, insists on is that you have planned yeah. what you're going to do before you come into the operating room. And, and you know, he was he was very good at anticipating not only what I'm going to do, but the the impediments that I might encounter. You know, where might I have trouble and how am I going to fix that? How am I going to recover from these problems? And we would write out very, very detailed plans, draw out very, very detailed plans. We would pre-construct the fixers. And, and I took away from that so much because I apply that to everything I do. I apply that to whether it's spine deformity or, or neuromuscular hip reconstruction or whatever. I really rarely have something happen in the operating room that I didn't expect that I hadn't already thought through. Yeah. I mean, down to sutures, down to what kind of cast I'm going to put on, down to what my rehab plan is going to be when we leave the operating room. And, and so if you're just, you know, if you're just going through what you've rehearsed, then again, when you hit a roadblock, 
it's a little easier to, and if you've thought through, what am I going to do if I hit this roadblock? It's a little easier to handle those challenges. And he was one of the handful of people that really, really demonstrated the advantage of thinking like that clinically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's um, there's so much to be said for that. And Chris Ahmad and Mike Vitale have worked on this project for this book. And I think the the, the process of making anticipation of complications uh, an intentional component of your of your preparation is so critical and, and I agree I mean you do it and and uh, I've lived it and I think your ability to think through every step of the process not just from from skin to skin but from the post-op and you know di- things like diet and mobilization and post-op rehab is, is really critical so it's it's cool to hear where that came from um I want to move on a little bit to uh, the process of getting back to Emory. So, um, and and you got recruited back back here, but I think your first year or two in practice was sort of unique. Can you talk a little bit about how you came back here and then sort of how things rapidly changed on you? So I'm not really sh- sure how I completely how I came back here, but <laughs> I, I came out of fellowships um, right at the point when HMOs were taking over and a number of practices were contracting because people were afraid about whether they were going to have enough to do next year. I had a I had a, an opportunity at Vanderbilt, but 10 Care came into being uh, and that opportunity evaporated. Anyway, I had a number of really good job opportunities, but wanted to get back to the Southeast or stay in Minnesota. And the folks in Minnesota made it clear that they loved me and they loved teaching me and they wanted me to go away. <laughs> that they wanted me to go work somewhere else. <laughs> that wasn't and, what I was expecting. And they were, very, they were very Minnesota nice about it, but you know, they made it clear that one of the reasons that they had taken me as a fellow was they thought I probably wouldn't stick around, which was fascinating. But I, I did get that. I mean, it makes sense to go somewhere else, not to stay where you train. Uh, and so I started looking at... Atlanta, and I actually was really interested in, in uh, Children's Orthopedics of Atlanta, the the group at, at Ray Morrissey's group at Scottish Rite, and they were now part of. Right, and he and I uh, hit it off very, very well. I had what I thought was a great interview, and I think that that they were honestly uh, interested in my practice. Their fellow that year, who is a tremendous orthopedic surgeon as well, was also someone they were interested in. Decided that that he would take the job, and so they offered it to him, and. At that point, I had, I had sort of shoehorned my way in at Emory. I, I met Jack Eldridge, who was the chief of pediatric orthopedics at Emory. But remember, we also had Peter Meehan, who is, you know, who has a, a, a great history, um, and and um, Steve Buckley, who is in Huntsville, Alabama now, who is still a, a very good friend, had recently joined Emory, and then Butch Schmidt was in pro- pro- private practice, and again, Butch Schmidt founding member of POSNA and, and, you know, was was a great influence on my early career. So I joined this group very naively. Uh, three people at Emory, one person in private practice, all of whom didn't feel like I needed to be in Atlanta. Uh, they didn't feel like there was enough work for me. I spent two days a week at Grady doing the pediatric orthopedic clinic and the pediatric orthopedics that was there. That's before children's took over the care of Hughes Spalding. And I also did adult trauma. And I was fairly well trained in adult trauma, having worked with the folks we've discussed previously. Yeah. So that worked out fine. Uh, I, I came here and, and, you know, put my head down and worked hard. And, you know, was told pretty quickly that it was my job to build my practice. And I went, okay. 
And then a couple of things happened, but Peter Meehan and Steve Buckley and Jack Eldridge decided that they were going to leave Emory about a year into my practice, maybe just a little over a year. And I didn't have the velocity to leave. I'm not sure that 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 would have worked even if I had had the velocity, but they decided to leave Emory and they joined Butch Schmidt in private practice and founded pediatric, well, it was already Pediatric Orthopedic Associates, but they joined that practice. And Lamar Fleming, who I have to give credit for all of this, had had interviewed me, had hired me, and grabbed me and said, keep your head down, work hard, you're my boy. Or as he He said, my boy. My boy. And um, everybody was boy, and gave me the opportunity to you know to to be successful. We managed to stay together as a teaching unit. So although they left our faculty, they left our faculty as full time faculty. They didn't leave our faculty as clinical faculty. The residents worked with us seamlessly, and they really honestly continued to help me make good decisions and learn. Um, it wasn't always easy. Some of the interactions were a little terse and difficult. But 90% of that was me and 10% them. And, you know, I've matured a lot and, and, and we really developed quite, uh, quite a good work, working relationship. Jack Eldridge, with the merger of Scottish Rite and, and Eggleston, which was the children's hospital at Emory, decided to move to Louisville, Kentucky. And tragically, we lost him very, very young a number of years later. But, but uh, you know, and Steve Buckley decided to move to Huntsville. So all of a sudden, I, I go from being one of four at Emory and, uh, to being the only person at Emory, and, and I didn't appreciate what, what that would do for me. But, you know, the big E is a big funnel. It's a big draw for the Southeast. And all of a sudden, I found that I had as much of anything as I could possibly want to do to do. Uh, I was at the bottom of a giant funnel and was very, very busy. I had the fortune of working with a tremendous residency, and, and the orthopedic residents were great partners in taking care of patients. I also had the privilege, reasonably early on, of having a nurse practitioner join the practice, Denise Coltis, now Denise Coltis Bray, from um, Dr. Warren in New Orleans. And so she had worked with him. She had been doing pediatric orthopedics for a couple of years. She She was a very, very bright woman and had been an ICU nurse before that. And, you know, we became a great team. Dr. Fleming frequently reminded me that I was the second best children's orthopedist in his practice with Denise being the best children's orthopedist in his practice. And I I think that there's, you know, absolute truth in that. So, you know, we, we went along for a while and then realized that we had way too much to do and needed to add someone. And this was the sort of dark time for pediatric orthopedics. I think the year that we decided to add someone, there were like six or seven folks trained across the country in children's orthopedics. It may have been closer to 10, but it was a very, very small number. And we recruited fairly aggressively for a number of years, again, still working with the community practitioners and having a collegial relationship with Dr. Morrissey's group, with Dr. Morrissey until he retired. Um, and just, you know, kind of trying to, to be the best I could be for the patients and for the residents and for the department. So um, I love hearing the stories. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've always been really amazed at, well, actually two things. So one is um, to give perspective, Bob does a tremendous amount of spine. And even sort of uh, a little bit later in his career, you're still doing a tremendous amount of spine. But that wasn't your original 
uh, sort of main focus. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you wanted to, but you did a lot of CP at the beginning. Um, and sort of have built this big spine practice in part because you take such good care of the kids with CP that I think spine has sort of built organically out of that because the CP kids have, have scoliosis and then you take care of their scoliosis there and then the pediatricians say, oh, he took such great care of you know, this neuromuscular scoliosis and then AIS sort of shows up. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious how you build that, how, how, you, how you build out subspecialization when you're the only guy within the group because I hear from people who go to community hospitals or smaller hospitals and they can't do scoli because they're so busy with trauma or they can't do scoli because they're so busy with just general orthopedics. I'm curious how you built that. So I wish I could tell you it was completely with a purpose or a plan, but um, I came to Emory happy to have a job. Yep. And eager to be helpful and do whatever needed to be done. Uh, one of our partners at Emory, John Heller, I'm sure many who listen to this will recognize the name, was already recognized pretty strongly in the spine world. And when I got here, said, how hungry are you? And I said, very. And he said, so when I'm on call, do you want to do the stuff that comes in at Emory? And I said, I'll do anything. So, you know, he would call me with a little old lady with a hip fracture. And I would go over to Emory and fix that. I decided that if I became a utility player, if I said yes to whatever anyone asked me to do, that they would view me favorably and they would send the stuff to me that I ultimately wanted to do. Obviously, I came out of the University of Minnesota residency at a time when spine was king. Um, So was total joint and so was oncology, but I did far more spine fusions as a resident than I did total joint replacement or any other case and was very, very comfortable about the spine when I finished. Um, And then I worked at Gillette and so I knew I wanted to take care of children with cerebral palsy. It it just was a patient that appealed tremendously to me and the surgeries are interesting and the thought processes are interesting and the challenges. Um, trying to figure out what you have in, in terms of problems and what the opportunities are to make those children better was just really, really intriguing for me. So CP was something I absolutely set my mind on and, and pretty quickly when I got here established myself with the developmental pediatricians in the community and the neurologists as someone who sort of understood the patient and understood what I think is you know, at that time was considered sort of modern cerebral palsy care, things like single event, multi-level surgery, which we didn't call symbols at that point. In fact, we called them shark attacks at Gillette. Sorry, (laughs) I know they're symbols now, but we call them shark attacks. And, and, but the concept was single event, multi-level surgery, one surgery and one rehabilitation course and, and a better outcome. So cerebral palsy was something I absolutely set out with a plan. I just kept my head above water with everything else, and I did what spines came to me. But I was in a community with giants in the spine field. You know, Dennis DeVito had a, had a great reputation and was very, very busy doing great work. And Ray Morrissey was still very strong in spine, and Jack Eldridge was very strong in spine, and Butch Schmidt was still doing spine, and Peter Meehan very, very strong in spine. So I had a lot of competition. But as you said, I, I started out with things like neuromuscular scoliosis because that was something people found a little less desirable. And and I was at Emory alone, and the and the adolescent onset idiopathic scoliosis started to come my way. And there's somebody I've completely ignored in this conversation, and that's Bill Horton. Bill was at Emory, and a really really strong, well recognized, very thoughtful scoliosis surgeon. And and he was 
great to me, mentored me through the thought processes early on through a couple of bad decisions or complications and that sort of thing. Um, but yes, yeah, so scoliosis started to come my way, and I absolutely wanted to be a scoliosis surgeon. So, you know, I learned as much as I could, studied as hard as I could, worked as hard as I could on being better every day, and that practice came my way. Um, and as you said, there was a period of time where I was too busy with everything, including scoliosis surgery. Yeah, I mean, but but it's it's sort of remarkable because I, I get asked a lot by our fellows, by residents around the country that they're looking at jobs and the jobs are only sort of pigeonholing them in here. And, and I actually use your example a lot because I think that if you uh, if you look at it in that way and you don't look at the room for opportunity to get in the door with pediatricians, if you want to build out a different part of your practice, it just, I mean, it may not happen instantaneously, but you can grow it organically. And I think you did a really good job of that. Um, the other thing that I think is, is remarkable, and I've told, I've told many people this before. Um, when I first got here, as you know, we started this project looking at uh, sort of post-operative care, and I was retrospectively looking through your uh, your patients as we were putting it together, and I was amazed. I know that from an insurance standpoint at the time, you were one of the only people in town who would take a certain type of insurance, and because of that, your volumes were just crazy. And it was like Monday, 90 degree curve, Wednesday, 90 degree curve, Friday, 90 degree curve, plus all the CP. And I thought, how in the world did you do this? So I'm curious if you can reflect on how you built efficiency into your practice uh, and, and into your life as you started to quickly ramp up, because you probably ramped up quicker than most people do. Great. Interesting question. So First of all, I want to start out with I've been very lucky. I've been very fortunate. And I think on occasion I made my luck, but most of the time I was just lucky. I, uh, I was forced to be efficient. I had a wonderful wife in a doctoral program for psychology. I had you know, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. I had residents to teach. I had rounds to make. I had a full clinic. And it wasn't going to happen unless I figured out how to kind of put it all into perspective. And people around me really understood that. And, and you know, I generally was reliable. And if I told someone I was going to do something, I did it. If I told them it was going to take a certain amount of time, I was typically fairly accurate on how long it would take me. And so the operating room was very good about letting me pop in at 6.30 in the morning and pin an elbow before rounds and before clinic and before conference and then kind of get on about my day. Um, I've always been a bit efficient and back to my parents, you know, that was sort of, I mean, it was expected. real efficient. <laughs> yeah, it was expected. I, but I've, I've, you know, always been a bit of an efficient person, even through high school and college. Um, but it was by, it was by necessity and somewhat by, by luck. And then having a lot of really, really, really nice people around me that, you know, understood that I had to be that way. And the system here, the children's healthcare system, has really been to my, you know, has, has, has functioned to my advantage. They have cared about me. They have cared about the patients I want to take care of, you know, so those mutual interests make it a little easier. Um, but I'm not completely sure how I did some of it, honestly, looking back on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if you asked my children, they would say I was at recitals and soccer matches and 
tennis matches and whatnot, but I was still gone an awful lot. And I was tired a lot of the time, and neither one of them wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon yeah. when they finished college, which is too bad. <laughs> it sort of makes me sad. Um, well, and I mean... I remember when I came here, one of the holes that I filled was that I was no longer a spine call, a spine fellow taking call here because I know for a while you were so busy and we were so short staffed as a group that you were basically overseeing our adult spine fellows who were taking peds call at a you know large peds hospital, um, and which meant that you were probably in what. 20 days more or less a month uh, if you counted the days that you were covering them. Oh, easily. So back to the paramix stuff that you yeah. mentioned. We, we did have a period of time, again, dark days, where uh, many children in Georgia really only had access to one children's orthopedist in the state. You might imagine what that paramix was. was. <laughs> um, it had to do with the uh, managed Medicaid moving into Georgia. And, and I understand the private practices challenges. I understand kind of where they were coming from. For me, efficiency and volume trumped low-payer max. I, I always was a production-paid orthopedist. I had absolutely no you know, support from memory or salary. I was um, collections-less overhead. But I, through volume and through efficiency, was able to do very, very well and take care of the patients that needed to be taken care of and have a lot of fun and teach, you know, have a tremendous amount of material with which to teach the residents. So that worked out to my advantage. It was to the disadvantage of some. We did have a period of time where we had significantly inadequate coverage at Eggleston, and I was on call a lot, and I was managing moonlighters, many of whom were fellows in spine and in oncology, and primarily spine and oncology. But, you know, the, again, those folks rose to the occasion you know the cream sort of rises and they did a great job yeah they were very aware of what their limits were they would call me in the middle of the night if they were in trouble and i live you know as you know a thousand yards from the hospital and so i could be in the operating room in five ten minutes and fix you know help them fix the problem in home in 30 minutes an hour and and i was happy to do that i was happy to do it for them i was happy to do it obviously for the patients um and I never felt sorry for myself. I never felt like it was anything other than the right thing to do, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. But I needed a partner. Well, and thank the Lord <laughs> <laughs> that you that you came along, which is a great story. Yeah. Well, but, but before we get there, because trust me, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna push that away. Um, one of the things that uh, that I think also really impresses me. Uh, is that you had so much going on clinically that you could have sort of just done that. I mean, I, I honestly, uh, for perspective, and I, I don't know the numbers, but you were doing like, you know, seven, 800 cases a year, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. which is pretty, pretty ridiculous. Um, and yet you have you have felt all along that leadership within our organization is really critical. And I've said when people ask me about you as a partner, because your roles in POSNA have been much less so, but every pediatrician in town probably has you on speed dial, and you served at the highest level within our hospital. Why has that been so important for you? Why, why have you valued your, your leadership roles within the hospital? Great question. Yeah, I have a number of folks that have 
you know, mentored me very effectively and very strongly. So as I like to say, on whose shoulders I stand. Shortly after, maybe three or four years after arriving at Eggleston, uh, Kurt Heiss, who's a pediatric surgeon, grabbed me and said, Dr. Bruce, you have two choices. You can lead or you can follow. You don't seem like you want to follow. Um, I'm not sure that was a compliment. but He knew um, you early on. <laughs> and I would suggest that we promote you as a leader. I think you would do a good job, which was an interesting backhanded compliment. And, um, and so sort of t- sat down with me and talked to me about what he thought might be a leadership trajectory within the system, why he thought it would be beneficial. He had absolutely approached that and was well into it. And, um, and gave me the opportunity to sort of lead locally in the operating room and on our campus, both by example, you know, take great care of patients, but also eat a bunch of rubber chicken early in the mor- <laughs> late at night and, you know, bagels early in the morning, going to meetings. Um, and so I became, you know, division chief for pediatric orthopedics at Emory, which was really... <laughs> because I was the only person there. Um, I became the section chief in the hospital because, you know, I think they thought that I would be a fair person. Uh, Director of the operating room and, and, you know, moved up through the ranks to uh, the president of the medical staff and and sat on the medical executive committee for, I don't know, like 19 years, peer review, you know, any number of committees within the system. And I did that because... I love the place, and because I really like the opportunity to, to you know, maybe on occasion help make the medical staff's life easier, and maybe have an influence on the quality of the medical staff. But it, but it had way more to do with making sure that we could get our jobs done as efficiently as we could, and that the you know our professional partners, the administrative folks, and and I really do view them as partners. Um, Understood, kind of what we were up against and what the opportunities were, what the challenges were, where, you know, where I thought maybe things would be easier if we thought about them differently. Um, and really, really, I really, really enjoyed all that, although I, I, I sort of peaked at a younger age than I thought I would. I enjoyed that process more than I thought I would. It was incredibly consuming of time. And, and, you know, again, I feel badly for my family because that was one of those things that really did take me away late at night and, and often early in the morning from, you know, taking kids to school or, you know, family things. But if it wasn't for the time component, what do you think of all the jobs? Cause you, I mean, you've had a ton of jobs in the system at the hospital level. What do you think was your favorite? Absolutely. Without question, it was the privilege of not an elected member of the board, but serving on the board of trustees for the Children's Hospital. So at that time, and, and, this, and that still exists, the president of the medical staff is, is a de facto member of the board of trustees. I don't know whether I was a voting member or not. I, I, I don't think I ever needed to vote, but I absolutely had influence. And they looked to me for information and for direction a remarkable amount of the time, actually, I, I, I was embarrassed. So I got to work with the Board of Trustees, and I got to do that for four years, actually for six years. And what I came to realize was how strong our hospital system was. You know, The members of the community who were behind the Children's Hospital were all the who's who in Atlanta. Um, they gave completely selflessly of time. They also gave a lot of money, but the time that they gave to the Children's Hospital was mind-boggling. Yeah. 
Uh, board meetings were very, very efficient, and a tremendous amount was was executed during, you know, amount of, of activity happened during those meetings, but nothing ever happened in the meetings that didn't have a lot of preparation. And, you know, again, like, like I approached the operating room, you know, rarely did we talk about something in that meeting that we hadn't already talked about and thought through and really made the right decisions before we were on the meeting. And I was on subcommittees. I was on the, um, buildings and grounds subcommittee when we renovated both hospitals built the operating room that we're getting ready to vacate but that we moved into in 2007 and you know saw how these people were and got to know them personally and 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 was invited to their homes and to dinner with them and you know really really um, integrated into that process and came away from that feeling so lucky to work where I work and so you know, interested in making sure that the people I work with appreciated what they did for us and appreciated how fortunate we were to have such a beautiful place to work and the resources that we did and the interest of the board in our success. Children's is an interesting organization, as you know, and it's one that has been incredibly fiscally responsible. You know, and the leadership group, uh, really dates back, quite honestly, to the merger in 1998. Uh, but, and the board functions with that in mind as well. It's, it's kind of no margin, no mission. And it, as long as they can keep the doors open and pay the bills, then the mission is very important and it's first and foremost. But if we have no ability to you know, run the hospital tomorrow to pay the staff to pay for things that we need, widgets that we need in the operating room, then then, then we can't help children. And, and, you know, they continue to operate that way. And the board is very, very fiscally minded. Um, the endowment is enviable. The growth in the endowment is unbelievable. It's crazy, yeah. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars when I joined the board, and it's billions, you know, many billions now. And um, But again, it's because the board is so dedicated to responsibly managing the hospital, running the hospital, making good decisions that benefit children and children's. Um, but they are 100% com- committed to, you know, we need to be available to all children in Georgia. And again, all of those things gave me a perspective that I had yeah. no access to. And, and I was a very young... You know, immature, overly confident person when I started on that journey, and um, and the humility that that gave me was really, was really a lot of fun. Um, I think my wife appreciated it quite honestly at home, but um, but I enjoyed that process. And, and again, the question you asked is, you know, of the privileges I was given during that period of time, what, what was the greatest in it? By far and away, the privilege to work with the board and the members in the community who are part of the board, who are still. Great friends. Yeah, yeah. You've, I mean, you've done a really remarkable job of befriending so many people in the community. Um, uh, now, one of the things that you've obviously had an opportunity to, to do over that time is to work with so many uh, administrators. We're, we're pouring water and drinking bourbon right now, so you, you may hear that, listener. Um, uh, so... You, you've worked with a number of administrators, and I think that I will, you know, call myself out early on. I didn't really know how to sort of manage that side of my of my world. I didn't know how to talk to administrators. I didn't know sort of what they wanted and how I could get things done and how compromises occurred. 
talk about that process a little bit of, of learning because I think you really do function very well with the the chief administrators right now um, and, and how you sort of learn how to intermingle with them and, and work as partners, like you said, as opposed to adversaries. So understanding that I came into this an absolutely immature, overly confident uh, orthopedic surgeon who thought that the world revolved around me, or should anyway, uh, and I've made every mistake you can make a number of times. I, I, I've been lucky enough to have most people give me the benefit of the doubt and at least one additional chance. <laughs> and, um, and, and, I have, and, I've, and I've worked with some that weren't particularly interested in the right things, right? But the vast majority of them struck me as having the same um, interest and direction that I had. And, and, and so when you can find common ground with anybody with whom you're working, especially someone with whom you have a conflict, Right, so if you can find that common ground, if you both really want ultimately the same thing, you just sort of you, you know you th- you see it as gray and they see it as black. Um, you, you generally can resolve that. Uh, I've had to be called down a, a handful of times, but really, honestly, more times than not, not. And um, you know, kind of close calls where I almost made the wrong decision, made the right decision, went home and went, wow, I, I was so fortunate Lucky. to make the right yeah. decision. And maybe a little bit of perspective. You know, again, I, I tend to have worse sense about some things in, you know, in the operating room and in these environments. And again, I would say the, the thing that made the administrators want to help me because they have gone out of their way to help me has been the fact that they knew the primary motivator for me was was three things. It was the children first and foremost. I love my patients and, and want what's best for them 200% of the time. Um, the residents in the, in the education environment, and I'm you know, unbelievably committed to the residents and an advocate for them. Doesn't mean I don't expect a lot of them. I absolutely do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but they expect a lot of me, right? And and I think so. I think the feelings mutual, and we have a great relationship as a result thereof. And, and then lastly, the system, and you know, both Emory and Children's Healthcare, which which often are at odds with each other, which really makes me sad. Um, anyway, they both of those systems know I, I love them, and you know, feel very strongly about them, and you know would would run through a wall for them, and and so they bend over backwards to try to help me to try to you know, accommodate the things that I need within reason, as long as I'm reasonable. Um, you know, it's interesting, though, because um, you mentioned the, the relationship between Cho and Emery, and I think it's, it's fascinating looking at some of, you know, our sister institutions around the country, I think. You know, uh, in Dallas, you've got uh, TSRH and Dallas Children's um, and and obviously sort of the, the greater UT Southwestern in Boston. You have Boston Children's as part of the Harvard program. But there's a lot of these separations between the hospital, a children's hospital that doesn't necessarily always have an academic arm. And then Emory. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you see when you have that that uh, sort of dual—I don't want to call it dual—two eight hundred pound gorillas that are sort of trying to play in the same uh, cage at the same time. So, I mean, obviously, you and I both uh, straddle this chasm on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, Emory is a major force in in the Atlanta metropolitan area. It's one of the major employers. 
uh, has made good decisions more times than, than not, um, has, a, has a very, very strong clinical uh, presence and for good reason, and you know, provides great patient care for the most part. They're a strong research institution, and the Department of Pediatrics 20 years ago was a kind of also ran nationally. Great Department of Pediatrics, terrific clinicians, but not much in the way of NIH funding and national recognition, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and, and they lost money in the Emory system in which overhead is quite high, and children's health care was dependent on, upon them for existence at, at Eggleston, which is primarily a, you know, an Emory hospital, so Emory Pediatric Hospital. So I understand children's being frustrated with Emory because Emory was constantly running a deficit and asking for that to be made up by the, the children's hospital. But the children's hospital had the revenue stream. Emory didn't. They do on the other side. So I understand Emory's perspective as well. Children's made the commitment to Emory to take over the pediatric, you know, departments, take over the Department of Pediatrics and to run it well, but said, if we're going to do that, we want to run it, which which I think is completely fair. And Emory didn't, didn't want to give up control. So that was a bit of a battle. Emory committed a lot to letting that happen. They, they, they gave up con- control of the Department of Pediatrics, which is something that very few academic institutions are willing to do. Children's invested terrifically in infrastructure, in clinic space, in management, and then in endowment commitment to research and allowed Barbara Stoll and Lucky Jane, both of whom, again, are people who are giants in my life, have, have you know been instrumental in my successes, to build a top five, top two, I think, this yep. year, Department of Pediatrics. So, so you know, when you stand back and you have perspective objectively and you're not committed to either, you would look and say, why aren't both extremely pleased with this relationship? You have a terrific department about both about which both should be proud and you both contributed to it but but you still are running a business there still are disagreements about who's in charge of what who has control over what children's is still first and foremost a clinical institution with an interest in quality and and quantity and throughput and access for the state and, and Emory's interest is far more on the research side. So, you know, you know, they still are opposed at times. And, and I think that that tension generally has been healthy. Yeah. So it, it hurts my feelings. It's like having two family members that you love to death that don't get along. And, and, you know, you really like spending time with both of them, but you can't see them both on Thanksgiving day. Um, uh, it hurts my feelings when either says something bad about the other. I, I think they're both, you know, the reason that the system is so successful. And, yeah. and I think we'll continue to see that move closer together. I want to move on to some more stuff about clinical care. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you and I talk about this kind of stuff a lot. Um, and the innovations that have come about in my career have been, I mean, remarkable. I did a spine today, easy navigation that didn't exist 13 years ago with a bone scalpel that didn't exist and this little bipolar sealant that didn't exist and stuff like that. What are, I mean, uh, you've had, you've seen a lot, um, and I don't want to just focus on spine, but what are some of the things that you think of that are 
truly like just mind-blowing innovations that have improved care during your career? I mean, it's kind of funny. You think of yourself as, um, I think of myself as still being very, very young and not having been, you know, around for long. And yet, when I look at, let's say, scoliosis care, you know, I... um, I, I had the opportunity to participate in surgeries as a medical student with the most absolute rudimentary spinal instrumentation that yeah. ever existed, right? And, um, you know, one hook on each end and, and ratcheting from each end, and then we put them in a wrister turnbuckle cast. And then the next week, had the opportunity to be in conference with Drs. Cottrell and Dubesay looking at this CD instrumentation that was kind of new and they were using in a number of places yeah. and, and presenting cases literally to those two giants. Yep. Unbelievable giants. And talking about you know how they would handle these cases and then presenting cases of CD instrumentation. And, um, and, and so we were using primarily hook constructs. Uh, we did a lot of anterior surgery. Um, hemostasis was not nearly as good as it is now. Blood banking wasn't as good as it is now, and, you know, and on and on it goes. Um, but it was the best we had at the time. And, and then we had you know, an interesting thing happen in the, in the 80s. Uh, there was a class action lawsuit against the manufacturers of spinal implants for pedal screws, right? So I put a bunch of Steffi screws and Steffi plates in as a resident, probably a PGY2 and 3, and all of a sudden we were no longer putting pedal screws in because we really couldn't. Yeah. You know, some people were using them. So that technology went away, and, and I did a bunch of big, bad deformities with sublaminar wires and, and rods and hooks and no screws for a decade and you know went to conferences and presented my cases to my friends and to my mentors from the University of Minnesota and and, and, you know got critique from them and then um, you know had the privilege of spending a day with Larry Linke in St. Louis at interestingly the shrine um, with Dr. Schoeniker as in Perry Perry Schoeniker right Pops Pops (laughs) who was terrific and, you know, decided I was going to start using pedicle screws and started using a hybrid construct pedicle screws at the caught end of the construct. And, and so that technology just sort of moved along. And it, it, it kind of happened like uh, glacier flows for me. Uh, you know, I, I, I had the movie. I didn't have the snapshot view of what was going on. But all along... You know, things were changing significantly, what we could do, how safely we could do it, or sometimes how unsafely we could do it, right? Because early on in pedicle screw instrumentation, the temptation to push technology over reason, to push deformity correction over safety was really, really strong. And I think, unfortunately, a number of of, of people were injured uh, as a result thereof. Interestingly enough, I had an interaction with Dr. Winter after retirement, kind of mid-career for me. He was a dear friend while I was at the University of Minnesota, and his daughter is still one of my best friends, and we were having dinner together. And he said, so please tell me you haven't resorted to triumph of technology of a reason. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, please tell me you're not using all these pedicle screws and pushing these spinal corrections when all we want to do is prevent progression of curvatures. And I, you know, I was embarrassed because... 
I mean, yeah, it, it was very difficult to disagree with him. And I think he, in this case, you, you know, there was a lot of reason to what he was saying. So that that made me kind of step back and, and think really hard about whether what I was doing was ethical, whether what I was doing was was safe and, and in the best interest of the kids. Um, but most of what happened to me was kind of through just tremendous volumes and, and you know, Experience and again going to national meetings. Iterative, iterative, iterative. You're constantly, yeah. It was. So, one of the things that happened to me is, uh, and I mean, this isn't really technology, but I mean, obviously, you and I've spent a lot of time working on this, talking about this. You've spent a lot of time writing about it to my benefit. Thank you. But um, early on in uh, my time with the merged children's hospitals, uh, I was approached with the need for a quality initiative in scoliosis surgery. And so we talked about the fact that we probably should put together you know, protocols for management to minimize variability when unnecessary, maximize outcome. So we put a, a, a group together that was multi-specialty. We had physical therapists. We had nurses. We had case managers. We had surgeons. We had anesthesiologists. We had operating room nurses. And they were from both campuses, and we met really early in the morning and we put together order sets and we put together sort of standard protocols for the care of scoliosis. And, you know, for whatever reason, we instituted those pretty aggressively in my practice because I'd gone to the trouble to put all these order sets together. They were printed order sets. You know, we had them all printed up and put on the floor. And it just made sense to me to be able to hand an order set to a resident and say, just check the boxes and we we will miss less. So we did this. And Immediately, we're missing. We're not missing things. We're not forgetting to prescribe antibiotics postoperatively, and the patients are getting much more consistent results. Right, anecdotally, but they're getting much more consistent results, and they feel better, and they're getting up faster. And because we have physical therapy involved in the decision making, physical therapy is seeing the kids immediately after surgery, the first morning, or even the day of. Sometimes, getting them up on their feet, they're moving around, and all of a sudden, they're ready to go to go home much earlier than the sort of five to six to seven days that we had traditionally used. I wasn't trying to push patients out of the hospital early on. Then I realized that it really was better for them to be out of the hospital. They get sick in the hospital. Somebody does something silly or they get exposed to something else or, you know, whatnot. So I started telling families when they were in clinic, you're going to go home on post-op day three. And they would look at me and go, you're kidding me. I've been, you know, looking on the fairly new Internet and everybody, all these <laughs> parents tell me that they're in the hospital for, you know, five, seven, ten days. And I went, no, 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 they're going to go home on post-op day three. It works out great. Everybody does, and they do well, and you're back in school at a month. And they went, you're kidding me. A month is way too fast. And, and so it was sort of spin doctoring. It was setting expectations. And, and, you know, what I learned was as long as you set expectations, and I do that in everything I do. I set expectations with the residents before we do a case. But setting expectations for our patients, telling them what to expect, and actually, you know, owning up to that and, and living up to that and having it go that way instills a tremendous amount of confidence in your ability to provide care. So I would tell them they're going to feel well, they're going to go home on pay stop day through, and, and, and they would. And um, I had no idea that it was different than anybody else. Yeah. And then so three worked. And so I started saying post-op day two because three <laughs> worked so well. I figured, well, we'll get them out on the second day after surgery. And that worked great. And then I started telling people, you know, you're going to go home the day after surgery or the next day. And we were sending them home on post-op day one or two. And I just thought that was normal. I had no idea that that was 
you know, something different than what folks were doing across the country. And, and you know, and Tim Oswald and I were both doing it. We were kind of working together. And, uh, and it's funny because I interviewed this fellow from from Texas Scottish Rite Fellowship who, who says, you know, who's making rounds with me on Saturday and I'm sending somebody home. What were we sending somebody home? Day two. Day two. Yeah. Day two. And, and Dan and I had, we're sending our kid home day seven. We've done the exact, you've done the exact, exact same surgery. Right. But so the other technology changes, uh, uh, you, you know, interestingly, you know, I came to Emory and was immediately taught how to flex nail femur fractures yes. with inner nails. Uh, Peter Meehan, Jack Eldridge both taught me that. And Peter actually taught me how to do them with a single lateral approach in an S and a C-shaped nail, which, which I think works great for many fractures. And about a year and a half or two years into practice, I nailed the femur on a six-year-old child of an Atlanta police officer. And, and they showed up in clinic you know, three weeks later, and the, and the nail is sitting down there in the knee trying to poke out femurs healing great but you know i had to revise that and push the inner nail back up and i pushed it up and i put a little two seven screw in it to hold it there and thought huh i'll just start doing this on all these and so i would nail these fractures i would put as long a nail in as i could and i would put a two seven screw in it i'm talking about like 1996 or seven uh, and i'd put that screw in them and i i did that on 95 percent of the fractures for a long time so, you know, some of the technology changes for me were necessity, embarrassment, just made sense to me. Obviously, things like the bone scalpel and Aquamanus are terrific additions to our practice, but I still get back to the basics of what I was taught, you know, by people like Bob Winter and by Reby Thompson and by John Lonstein and Francois Denis and on and on the list goes. And they were, you know, take great care of patients, use meticulous hemostasis, be very, very careful, right? Try not to hurt somebody. And I still think that those are still way more important than the the technology advances that we see. Um, You know, the the adage that I was taught in residency was it's a bad carpenter who blames their tools. And occasionally I do blame the tools like everyone does. But I really do think that you ought to be able to get around uh, the challenges of an instrumentation system or something such as that with with being calm and gentle and and, using a little bit of sense. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because, well, first of all, I think that I've been, uh, to, to talk about standing on shoulders of giants, I've been incredibly fortunate that... I showed up, and I've said this on the podcast before, and you had created this thing that nobody else had done, and so I just happened to know how to do the research behind it, but you guys had already done it. But I I also remember uh, when my good friends and mentors, Christine Ho and Dave Pedeswa, had published on the Enders Nail, and I came up and I said, we're going to start doing this. You said, I've been doing this for 10 years. So I think that the, uh, the bit of advice to... Uh, young surgeons who are trying to start an academic career is you're not going to have your own patients, but I bet your partners are doing something that you're doing differently. And and I found very early on that I was fortunate that you had done a lot of things that I thought were interesting that we could study, um, which I think was sort of cool. Um, I did want to talk, um, uh, I want to get to family in a second, but I wanted to talk about a little bit of the process about bringing me aboard, not specifically me as a person, but the concept. Because I think that as I've gotten now 12 years in and you start seeing the the process of needing A, to just continue to grow the practice and have people, but also understand that like 
it's great to be booked out, but you, I'm sure you were booked out for probably nine months or something like that. At what point did you start really thinking, I need to bring in another partner? And it made sense in your, in your sort of ego that I can handle all of this one way. So what year did you come? Uh, 2010. Yeah, so probably in about 2005 or six, I was my ego allowed me to say, <laughs> I can't do it all, yep. even though I like doing everything. And I really do love a day in the operating room where I operate on a spine, a foot, a hip, and you know an elbow. But it just didn't make sense from a quality of life. It didn't make sense from a quantity of care. And also, I really wanted to have a partner that I felt like had my back and who knew I had their back. So, you know, we decided about 2005 that we were going to hire someone. We recruited actively for a number of years and had several really good folks take a look at the job and just take what they thought were more suitable jobs for them. We trained several uh, residents who went into pediatric orthopedics in that period of time, a couple of whom stayed locally and joined, you know, local private practices instead. I still, and they would tell you, I absolutely treated them like partners, welcomed them when they came back to the community, never viewed them as or treated them as competition. But they were competition, right? And the other practices were competition and viewed me as competition. So I really wanted someone who shared my ideal for, you know, residents and patients kind of being first and foremost. And, and, uh, and so... And I also took that, you remember, we talked about my early practice experiences. I had taken those to heart, and I was absolutely committed to making sure that if I hired someone, they would feel welcome and that they would be successful, that I would do everything in my power to make them successful. Obviously, they could you know, decide to move or not, you know, not do a good job, but that I was not going to be the impediment to their success. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was, I'm going to turn this around on you a little bit. So I was really fortunate to have you come along. I, I'm super sad for uh, Carolina's Medical Center because I know that was where you were headed. Um, and uh, fortunate that your residency friend and our friend, Tom Bradbury, uh, talked to you into coming for an interview. When we met, I believe in investing in people. I'm not always really good at recognizing talent, but there was absolutely no question your level of talent and your level of potential. Um, Everybody who met you was quite certain that you would be perfect. So I sat down with you and said, what do you want to do, right? Because, and and again, you you asked how I work with the administrators, how I work with a lot of people. I I start out with what what do you want? What do you need? So I asked you, I think, "What, what do you want? What do you want in a career? What do you need to be successful? And, you know, you, we talked about the things that, that I think were important to you. Um, you wanted to be able to be a good father, and you are. Uh, you wanted to be able to take care of your family, and I think you probably have no trouble with that. And uh, you wanted to have the practice you wanted, right? And we talked about the things that you were interested in. And, and, and I was committed to making sure you had material to take care of and, and access to those things. Obviously... It's been unbelievably beneficial to me, the research you've done. Uh, I'm so appreciative of that and the ability to ride your coattails there. Um, But you've pushed me three times as far as I went in the preceding 15 years. Uh, I think the two of us push each other on a daily basis. And and that's the, I think, unique privilege that we have of working together. 
um, uh, you know, we're continually motivated by the same thing. We want to be the best physicians we can be. We want to be the best teachers we can be, and we want to take the best care of the patients that we we can. But with those sort of understandings, uh, we can then push each other to to do a better job, to be critical, self-critical, really look hard at what we do and where there were opportunities to to just be better. And ultimately, I was so fortunate that it took me five years to to hire the right partner. I'm glad you didn't hire somebody before. (laughs) (laughs) I am too. And I mean, it was really close, right? I have no idea what would have happened. Yeah. Uh, The folks that that came through and didn't take the job were terrific people and would have been great partners. But we have been very... We've been very fortunate. The synergy between the two of us is real. The residents recognize it. Our friends and partners recognize it. It's been great. Yeah. So um, I think uh, you're very kind in all of that. Um, and one of the other things that you sort of alluded to that I think is critical, and I wanted to come back to this, was family. And, and I've, I've shared this on the podcast before. You and I have basically never fought in 12 years together. But the one time you got cross with me, as you know, was when I decided, when Jenna went down to Florida and I decided not to go because it was like my second year of practice. So I said, I have to stay busy. And you got frustrated with me and you said, you shouldn't do that. You should go down there. And, um, and I think in some way you mentioned earlier that it was hard early on when you were really flying solo and covering the hospital so much. But can you talk about sort of the how, when you're in a busy practice? I mean, it's hard to hard to change what's happened, but when you're in a busy practice, what are some of the things you learn about how to balance that out? How do you how do you stay a good dad? How do you stay a good husband um, when you're when you're in it? You know, early on in practice. I am by no means a content <laughs> expert. I don't think any of us are. <laughs> Min Coker said you're never in balance. You're just sort of constantly out of balance going back to the middle. Right. So I think I have been out of balance way more than anything else. But we can almost always look at someone else with a little bit more objectivity than we can ourselves. So what I would do is I'm going to answer that question, but I'm first going to turn that around on you. Mm-hmm. I think what we all need in our life is a couple of people who love us enough that they are paying attention to what's going on with us and then they love us enough that they'll actually tell us what they think even if it's not what we want to hear that's true true. and um, I knew for a fact that you were going to be crazy busy and that you were going to have a practice that everybody would you know would desire and certainly the practice that you desired and I knew that you would get the velocity no question about it and I understood why you were so motivated and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to hire you right so that trait in you was something that we found incredibly appealing but also one that I knew would drive you uh, from time to time to maybe expend um, maybe something like spring break with your family and, and so I, I looked at you and said, look, you're, you're never going to have children this age again. You're never going to have this spring break again. And it's only a few days and you need to take it. And I was sincere about that. And I was willing to kind of be firm about that because I've made that mistake over and over again. Right. And wish that somebody had said that to me early on. Um, so that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. Uh, but I'm absolutely not in balance most of the time. Um, I, I, I think you know now that I have grown, grown children, um, both of whom know I love them dearly and both of whom I think have perspective on how much I was around. I coached their soccer teams and basketball teams and tennis teams and climbing teams and everything else. So I was there, um, and, and they're appreciative of that. But they would also say that I was tired a lot and uh, worked hard. Yeah. Um, I think all of us 
could do a better job of looking after ourselves first and foremost. Because if we don't do that, then we're not really all that good a mate, partner, parent, even if we're physically present. And I think the the second thing is we we need to realize that occasionally you just have to set boundaries and say no and and make sure that you've taken time for yourself and for your family. Yeah. Well, one of the ways that you've taken time for yourself, and I wanted to come back to this at the end, was flying, which I've always thought was very cool. Although I've told you before that until you're a really, really good surgeon, and I'll operate with you any day, but until you are paid to fly, I'm not going to fly with you. But you love flying. And I think it's... It's you know we've we've got uh, other partners in our group who who are similarly interested in this and I don't know whether or not it's a southern thing or or what it is but um, what does flying give you I mean it, it it clearly takes a lot of effort definitely takes a lot of expense it it's a very coordinated effort and yet I think it's something that I feel like you know on a beautiful day in the spring when I'm like hey what are you doing you're up flying or you just got back from flying. And so it clearly gives you something still that you love, whatever, you know, how many years later when you were considering being a pilot as a kid. So, yeah, I was going to say, remember we started out with saying that I've always absolutely loved aviation. And unfortunately it was very expensive. Um, So I took a flying lesson when I was a medical student. I have no idea what I was thinking, but it was an introductory (laughs) flying lesson. I think it literally was $20, which was all the money in the world to me at that point. And um, got a logbook and came back and said, I'm going to learn to fly. And my father, who had a really good way of kind of putting me back in my place, said, that's really interesting. I have no idea <laughs> how you're going to accomplish that. Um, so I had wanted to learn to fly. And, and uh, as soon as I had enough money that I thought I could do it responsibly, Interestingly, it sort of coincided with my, my wife saying, you've always wanted to do this, and I really think you should do this. You, you, know, you sort of have my permission. So I took it very seriously. I got a private pilot's license in six weeks. So started flying you know, January 1st and had a, a, a license in mid-February. Wow. I flew two, three, four times a week and studied in my free time and have never in my life been happier than that. Sorry, I've... I shouldn't say that because I've had a lot of really, really happy times, but I cannot, I could not believe how exhilarating it was. It's a lot like surgery, and uh, the more I did it, the more I realized that the things that interested me in aviation were the things that make being a surgeon so much fun. Not, not rewarding, but fun. Um, it was the sort of, you know, difficult task, uh, thinking about it being prepared, accomplishing the task at hand, and then moving on to the next task sort of thing. So learning to fly, for those who listen to this, uh, who are pilots, is a fascinating process. When you get a license to fly, which I did as absolutely quickly as you can in terms of number of hours in the air and everything else, it's just a license to learn. It's just like being a brand new orthopedic surgeon the day you leave your fellowship. You know, you have enough skills to get yourself in trouble if you don't have the right people around. (laughs) Yeah. And please, let's come back to that thought. Um, and so I had no idea what I didn't know. And I, I luckily didn't hurt myself or my family. Um, but, you know, my family enjoyed being able to travel. We, we had some geographic opportunities to see family that we wouldn't have otherwise. And so flying is something that we enjoyed tremendously. We centered vacations around them and whatnot. It's still a real source of pleasure for me. It's an it's a intellectual challenge. It's a physical challenge. And it's beautiful. 
uh, flying in a small plane. And for me, it's a ton of fun. Every time I get up in the airplane, I think to myself at some point during the flight, man, I love doing this. And uh, I mean, there are a few things in life that I can say every single time I do them, I feel like that. But but flying is definitely one of them. Um, I have become a better surgeon as a result of becoming a pilot because, again, you, you know, there just aren't, you, you know, failing at some of the tasks and flying are not options, yeah. right? You, you can't fail at landing the airplane or you're going to die and you're going to kill people in the airplane. And, and you can't fail to plan adequately weather and fuel and um, what's going on at your destination, the airport, what you're going to find. You have to plan that trip meticulously. You have to think about all of those variables. You have to know what's going on there and you have to have alternatives. You have to have alternative airports to land at. Um, or enough fuel to get back to good weather or whatnot. And then the, you know, the ultimate catastrophe can happen, and you need a bailout there too. And, you know, and one of the things I enjoy about flying is continually looking around for an airport at which to land if the engine quits or, or something such as that. And the same thing, it sort of takes me back in the operating room. When I'm in the operating room, especially working with residents, one of my, um, one of my consistent comments to them is I'm not going to let you do something that I can't get you out of or get in trouble that I can't get you out of. And there are times when I don't let them operate because this is literally not something I can get you out of, right? Uh, and the same thing for aviation. I don't take trips on a regular basis because I, I can't get out of the problems I might encounter. There's just no way if I have a problem between point A and point B that I can recover from that. So I rent a car and drive or I cancel a trip or I go a day late or I come home a day early. And that continually reminds me that, you know, we're human and we have all these other obligations that we need to that we need to take into account and keep right there first and foremost in our thought processes as we take care of these kids that we're so lucky to take care of. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, listen, I told you, you were like, I don't think we're going to have an hour of content. And we've been going for like an hour and 40 minutes. Oh, so really? it's awesome. This is, I mean, I could do another two hours of this, but... Um, I, I can't tell you how much I value this. And I will say a, a million times that the greatest thing in my professional career has been the opportunity to work with you and together at, uh, at you know, something that, that we both love. And I think that we've had just a great synergy. So thank you for that. And thank you for this. So exponentially, you have been the greatest thing that ever happened in my professional career. And as you know, I love you dearly. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. We can here we can cheers. Here, make a <laughs> clink. Yeah. There we go. Okay. <laughs>